over the past few weeks. I don't know what to make of it, but my son, bless his heart, he can be a sweetheart, and he often is very sweet, especially with his, his mom. He's very good about following in daddy's footsteps and telling mommy that she looks beautiful and that she's so sweet and things like that. Over the past few weeks, me on the other hand, it's been a different story. How many of you know the fictional character by the name of Rumpelstiltskin? So he has added a G at the beginning, Grumpelstiltskin, and he's been calling me that a good bit lately. Been telling daddy that he's mean a lot lately, just in passing. I mean, I've not even been doing anything, and he'll look at me and say, Dad, you're mean. <laughs> okay. And he's been doing things like that over the past few weeks for a while now. And so this morning, I was helping him get ready for church, and he said something. I don't even remember exactly what it was. And I said, Michael, why have you been daddy lately? And he says, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, you might as well just tell Daddy he's a failure at life. So he says, Dad, you're a failure at life. <laughs> Thank you for that. I appreciate that. That's great. Oh, my. Anyone feel that way? It happens from time to time in my life as well, and it's especially good when your four-year-old son tells you that. So Mark chapter number 8 this morning. Our message found here in verses 1 through 10. The Bible says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have been now with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fast, to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, and brake and gave to his disciples to set before them, and they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And straightway he entered into a ship with disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. Mark 8 picks up right where chapter 7 left off. So there's not a break in the record here. There is not some intervening stories of Jesus' ministry that Mark leaves out between Mark 7 and Mark 8. It's just a continuing flow of thought. The Bible tells us that Jesus and his disciples are with a multitude. If you remember from Mark 7... After being up in Tyre and Sidon, they make a roundabout journey to Decapolis, turn what should have been just a short journey into about a 120-mile trip. We said it would be like getting from Nashville to Rocky Mount by way of Henderson, Roanoke Rapids, and then down to Rocky Mount. But Jesus and his disciples are here in Decapolis. They have been here for at least three days because Jesus has healed many. Mark records specifically the healing of the man who was deaf and had an impediment of speech. And Jesus points out the multitude has been with him for three days. So we know he's been here now for at least that length of time. And verses 1 through 10 tell us that Jesus had compassion on this multitude. And it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Because just back in Mark chapter 6, a multitude had been with Jesus. He had compassion on them. 
He taught them they were his sheep, not having a shepherd. And after teaching them for some time, he was concerned about their hunger. He didn't want to send them away without meeting that physical need. And so he blessed bread and fish and gave, multiplied, gave it to them. But there are a lot of differences. And it's, it's really unfortunate that some commentators try to say that Mark is revisiting Mark 6, that it's actually the same miracle, the same story, and it's not. It's unfortunate that they would come to that conclusion. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in the area of Gennesaret, which is directly west of the Sea of Galilee. Here he's in Decapolis, to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. In Mark chapter 6, it is a primarily Jewish audience. In Mark chapter 8, It is a primarily Gentile audience. And the numbers are different. In Mark chapter 6, he fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So the number was actually much higher. Here, the Bible simply gives us the number of the entire group, about 4,000. Also, in Mark chapter 6, they took up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, the word there is different than the word in Mark 8. In Mark 6, the word for basket is a handbasket, something that one person could carry easily. In Mark chapter 8, this word basket actually refers to something that a full-sized man could fit into. Do you remember the story in Acts when Paul was in danger and they let him out of the city by way of a basket? That's the word that's used here. So the seven baskets full of leftovers, these are massive baskets that two people have to carry between them. And so there are a lot of differences. And yet, with all the differences, one thing remained the same. The character of Jesus. And what I want us to see in Mark chapter 8 is that as Jesus demonstrated, drew his disciples into his work. In Mark chapter 6, it's interesting, the disciples kind of took the initiative, telling Jesus, hey, these people are going to be hungry, what should we do? Here, Jesus takes the initiative in that particular way, and he comes to the disciples and says, hey, these people are going to be hungry. They've been with me for three days. Even if they brought food with them, that surely is spent. I don't want to send them from this desert place hungry. What should we do? Jesus is drawing his disciples into his work. His draw to compassion and participation in the work influenced not only his 12 disciples who were a part of his life and ministry then, but it influences our lives today. You see, as we see accounts like this in the ministry of Jesus, as we examine a passage like this, that's the record of something that Jesus said and did 2,000 years ago, we are drawn by the invitation of Jesus into his work for some today. This will draw you to recognize that whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever your circumstances are, Jesus loves you. He gave himself for you. And the draw of the day will be to believe on him and be saved. For others of us, the draw of Jesus will cause us to respond through developing compassion for people and a commitment like Jesus had. How many of you know the name J. Wilbur Chapman? All right, many do. J. Wilbur Chapman was a Presbyterian evangelist during the late 18th, or excuse me, 19th and early 20th century. You may not recognize his name, but you would recognize him most for a hymn that he authored. He was the author of the hymn, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. Sometime during his ministry, he had the opportunity to visit London. And when he visited London, he had the opportunity to meet General Booth. How many of you know that name? 
okay, about the same number. General Booth is the founder of the Salvation Army. When it was founded by General Booth, it was a little bit less of a social project and more of a gospel-sharing project. General Booth's heart had been touched as he saw the the poverty of many in London during his life, and he founded the Salvation Army after himself hitting the streets of the impoverished places in London, sharing the gospel with people. And he, he went about to share the gospel as well as to be a charitable organization to meet the needs of people. But they were very, very focused and oriented on sharing the gospel and seeing people saved. At this time, when J. Wilbur Chapman had the opportunity to meet General Booth, General Booth was well into his 80s. And as Dr. Chapman and he spoke, Dr. Chapman wanted to ask him a question. He wanted to ask him what the secret of his success was. And then Dr. Chapman wrote of the experience these words. He said he hesitated for a second. And then I saw the tears come into his eyes and steal down his cheeks. And he, Booth, said, I will tell you the secret. God has had all of me. There was. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. After hearing that, Dr. Chapman walked away from that meeting knowing, as he put it, quote, the greatness of man's power is in the measure of his surrender. The greatness of man's power is in the measure of his surrender. What a convicting thought. As we look at Mark 8, the character of Jesus is on display. And what I see in Mark 8 today is the compassion and commitment of Jesus bursting off the page and inviting us to participate in them with him. So how should we respond to the draw of Jesus today? That's the question that we need to answer as we consider his compassion and his commitment. So I want you to see, first of all, this morning that Jesus draws us, he invites us to participate in his compassion. Again, in Mark 8, verse number 2, Jesus says, I have compassion on the multitude. And we saw this same phrase used when we looked at Mark 6, and we noted at that time that this word is only used of Jesus in the New Testament. So there is something that is uniquely and divinely special that identifies the compassion of Jesus. And it's only used in connection with him in the the New Testament. He invites us to participate in this. This compassion that is unique, that is divine, that is uniquely special to him, he invites us to share in it. What is uniquely and divinely special about the compassion of Jesus? I'd have you see, first of all, his compassion extends to everyone. Consider the two occasions connected with the multiplication of food. In Mark chapter 6, we pointed out already Jesus was moved with compassion toward a Jewish multitude. Now, Mark chapter 8, he's moved by that same spirit and heart of compassion toward a Gentile multitude. Now, think of this for just a moment. According to the flesh, Jesus was a Jew, right? In that day, how did a Jewish person view the world as far as how it was divided? Jew and Gentile. To the Jewish mind and heart, that's all there was. 
And by the way, they loved their own and hated the other. Jews loved their own people, but they hated the Gentile. Here was Jesus, a Jewish man. In Mark chapter 6, he was moved with compassion toward a Jewish multitude. Now in Mark chapter 8, he is moved by that same compassion toward a Gentile crowd. And what God's word is powerfully declaring to us is that Jesus loves everyone. Answer this question if you can. Who limits the compassion of Jesus? If there were someone to come to Jesus, any kind of person, would any limit the compassion of Jesus? Jesus were to be approached by this kind of person or that kind of person, would that person experience a limitation of the, uh, of the demonstration of the compassion of Jesus? And the Bible answers emphatically, no. On numerous occasions, his compassion encompassed a multitude of people. In, in, in the New Testament, his compassion extended to individuals. In, in Matthew chapter 20, his compassion extended to a blind man. In Mark 1.41, to a leper. In Mark 9, to a father and his demon-possessed son. In Luke 7, to a widow who was burying her son. In Luke 10, to the man lying broken and beaten in the road. In Luke 15, to the son who had abandoned his father and disrespected him. The Bible speaks of Jesus' compassion extending to all of these. There were none who limited his compassion. He loves everyone. Can I say this morning in this place that Jesus' compassion extends to people of any political association? His compassion extends to any religious denomination, to any racial, gender, or sexual identification. None of these things limit the compassion of Jesus. Who you are and what you are does not limit the compassion of Jesus for you in any way whatsoever. You say, I'm not sure I can believe that. Let me just show you how much Jesus loves you. The Bible declares this in Romans 5 and verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet, what? Sinners. Jesus did what? Died for us. Jesus loves you so much that he willingly, selflessly, and Officially endured death on the cross to save you. That is compassion. Whoever you are and wherever you are and whatever the circumstances of your life may have been up to this point, Jesus loves you. He gave himself for you and the Bible calls upon you to believe and be saved. You say, why does it matter? If Jesus' compassion extends to me, no matter who I am and what I am, why does it matter? Because the Bible also declares that we are sinners who stand condemned in our sin, by our sin, before God who is perfectly holy. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice and offers us a way to be delivered, to be rescued. So, what are you waiting for? Here is a God, a Savior, who loves you so much. There is no one ever who has loved you like that. Jesus did, and he does. Believe on him, and he'll save you. Some of us have believed on Jesus. He draws you and I to participate in his compassion. In other words, friend, we should love others as he does. If no one could limit the compassion of Jesus toward them, then can I ask you, who should limit our compassion? Maybe I should ask it this way. If anyone, anyone walked into this church today, would you love the person? 
If someone came in today and it was clear they had, maybe they made it known, they had a different political affiliation than you do, would you still love them? If someone walked in today and it was clear, without being crude, if I can use the terminology that sometimes we might use, that person was a flaming homosexual, would you love them? You say, Pastor, that's not what we should do, is it? Oh, yes, it is. You can love the person without loving his or her practice. Now, we struggle with that. But can I tell you who has never struggled with that? God. God loves people without accepting their practice. God loves people without loving what people do. And he calls upon you and I to do the same. We're not to limit our compassion. We're not to turn away from someone because they believe something different than we do. That we, they live in a way that we believe people aren't to live. Friends, can I remind you that that's true of all of us apart from Jesus Christ. We're all guilty before him all condemned before him. Jesus' compassion is not limited by anyone, and neither should ours be. I want you to see, secondly, his compassion extends to everyone. His compassion encompasses everything. I love this. If we step back to Mark chapter 6, Jesus was moved with compassion, and there it was because he saw the people as sheep not having a shepherd. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus being moved with compassion primarily was about their spiritual needs. In Mark chapter 8, something a little different happens. Is it because Jesus is not concerned about their spiritual needs in Mark chapter 8? No, They've already been with him for three days. What do you suppose has been happening during those three days? He's been healing people, but what else has he been doing? Teaching. So Jesus, for three days, has already been ministering to the spiritual needs of these people. What is his focus in Mark chapter 8, the account before us, as far as their needs go? Physical. He's concerned about that practical, physical need for food. And what I see here is this beautiful truth that Jesus' compassion, it extends to all people, but here it encompasses all the things that people care about. Look at Matthew chapter 6. I want us to familiar passage again. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 during his sermon on the mount jesus teaches these words therefore i say unto you take no thought for your life what ye shall eat what ye shall drink nor yet for your body what ye shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment behold the fowls of the air for they sow not neither do they reap nor gather into barns yet your heavenly father feedeth them are ye not much better than they which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast in the oven, how, shall he not much more clothe you, ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or Shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Yet your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Long passage, but familiar. What does Jesus teach here? He teaches us not to be ruled by anxiety and worry, to prioritize seeking God's kingdom and righteousness. But there is something else that we tend to miss. He taught God's care for you. 
Those things that you and I tend to be anxious about, those things that you and I tend to worry about, those things you and I tend to question, how is that need going to be met? How am I going to make it this week? How am I going to make it today? How am I going to get through all of this? Those things that tend to fill our hearts with anxiety and take our attention and focus away from prioritizing God's kingdom, Jesus says, hey, your father cares about those things. He cares about you have clothing to wear. He cares about if you have food to eat. He cares about those things. Now, why would he care about those things? His compassion for you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you, his care for you encompasses everything. Now, does that encourage you today? In a time when you and I are likely more stressed and overwhelmed about finances, making ends meet, paying the bills, higher costs of living, food prices and gas prices being multiplied, all of those things. Is there anyone here that hasn't been just a bit more concerned because of those things? In a time when you and I are more stressed and concerned, can I say to you today, Jesus has compassion for us in our needs. He cares because he loves us. And by the way, he can meet the needs. I'm thankful for this aspect of his compassion. Remember, friends, he draws us to participate in that. That means... That we will love everyone as he does, but it also means that we will care about the needs that others have. When other people have needs and God puts it before us along with the ability to meet the need, we'll have compassion as he does. So let me ask you, what limits the compassion of Jesus flowing through you? Not just who limits, but what limits. If he's inviting us into his compassion, who limits that in our lives? Who are we unwilling or unable to show compassion to? And what are we holding back? Jesus draws us to participate in his compassion I want you to see, secondly, he draws us to participate in his commitment. His commitment. Do you see this in Mark chapter 8? I want to show you how it pops up. Jesus, motivated by his compassion, desired to meet the needs of the multitude. And the disciples respond interestingly. Jesus says, hey, I, I, I want to feed them. They're, they're hungry. I don't want to send them away to their own homes hungry. And the disciples say to Jesus, well, where can a man get bread to feed this multitude? Their response is interesting because, I mean, they're not far removed from watching Jesus with five loaves and two fish feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So we're not very far removed from the disciples having seen Jesus take a small meal a boy's lunch and multiply it so that tens of thousands could eat how would they doubt that that could happen again now before we give the disciples a hard time can i remind you and me that we struggle in the same way don't we we see god do miraculous things we we have the more sure word of prophecy as peter says his word where we see over and over god meeting the needs of his people and doing miraculous things and yet you and i struggle with being concerned and worried about everyday things of life but can i also say this i'm not sure that the disciples comment is as faithless as may at first appear because after the the miraculous multiplication of food in mark chapter 6 another event took place the disciples were on the boat Jesus was on a mountain praying. 
They were rowing contrary to the wind, and they were afraid. Jesus came talking to them. At first, they thought it was a spirit, but after Jesus revealed himself, came into the boat with them, and the wind and the waves became a calm, and Jesus miraculously transported them to the shore, they did not say, what manner of man is this, like they had after the storm of Mark 4. In Mark chapter 6, they declared, this is the Son of God. So I'm not sure their comment is as faithless as we might think. Where can a man get this bread, food for this multitude? At this point, they already realize that Jesus is more than man. So in a way, they may actually be calling on Jesus, saying, hey, Jesus, we can't do it. You need to. Whether their response demonstrates faithlessness or faith, Jesus' response is significant. Whether they were saying in faithlessness, this can't be done, or in faith, man can't do this, Jesus, you need to do it. Either way, Jesus invites them to participate. How so? Well, look at verse 5. And he asked them, and what was the question? How many loaves have ye? Disciples, what do you have? And they answered, seven. Jesus not only invited them to participate in the work, but this is a broader invitation to them and to us to participate in his commitment. You see, Jesus wasn't just simply inviting them for this particular occasion to participate in this particular act. Jesus was inviting them beyond to participate in his work, his mission, his commitment. So let's ponder Jesus' commitment for a moment. Who was Jesus committed to? First, Jesus committed himself to the Father. In John 4, 34, the Bible says, Jesus saith unto them, his disciples, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Who sent Jesus? The Father. Whose work was Jesus sent to do? The Father's. Jesus was committed to his Father. But then, in his commitment to the Father, Jesus also, because it was the work, committed himself for us. Paul wrote these words in the first part of Titus 2.14, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for what? Jesus was committed to the Father, the work and the will of his Father. What was that mission? For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. He gave himself for us in fulfilling the commitment to his father, Jesus was also committed to us. I want you to see this. Jesus committed himself to pleasing and serving the father. And that commitment led to him to serve to get and give himself for others. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give himself his life a ransom for many. And so don't miss this. Jesus' commitment is about the Father, pleasing the Father by serving others. Let me ask you today, who are you committed to? Jesus invites us to participate in his commitment, a commitment that was about pleasing his Father by serving others. How do you suppose you and I can participate in the commitment of Jesus, pleasing and serving God through serving others? What did Jesus' commitment lead to? Ultimately, his commitment led him to go to the cross, didn't it? In John 17, as Jesus prayed, what we call high priestly prayer, 
he spoke of how he had glorified the the Father by completing the work. That work of coming to the hour for which he was sent, going to the cross. All through his life, Jesus' focus in the world sense while being committed to the will of his father his focus in the world sense was toward jerusalem because that is where he would give his life well what will your commitment lead to it's not by any accident that it was right after this recorded in mark chapter 8 that jesus taught his disciples in mark 8 verses 34 and 35 And when he called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it. What was Jesus doing? What was he talking about? He was showing the disciples what it was that a commitment leads to. You might say, wait, 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 wait. I'm supposed to commit myself to God, to pleasing and serving Him, and that is most often demonstrated through serving others, and that commitment is going to lead to dying with Him? Yes, in a manner of speaking. Paul said it this way, Galatians 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know what that is? That is total commitment. That is total surrender. Paul took that testimony and he challenged all of us. In Romans 12, 1, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You see, participating in Jesus' commitment means doing what he did in this sense. Serve God. Please God by serving others. For Jesus, that meant laying down his life and dying for us. It means much the same thing. First John chapter 3 tells us that like Jesus laid down his life, gave his life for all, we also ought to lay down our lives. Interestingly, John doesn't say directly for God. He says for the brethren, brothers. You see, friends, having a total commitment, coming alongside with Jesus as he invites us to participate in his commitment means being committed to God, pleasing and serving God, and that is most often demonstrated through serving others. That's what a total commitment looks like. But then I want to ask you this third question. What has Jesus committed to me? You see, because living life that way isn't natural to us. It's just not. Living with total commitment to God and demonstrating that through being able to lay down our lives for others is is not natural. We can't do it on our own Who is Jesus committed to? The Father. Who are you committed to? What did his commitment lead him to do? What will your commitment lead you to do? What is Jesus committed to you? Well, the simple answer is this. Everything. Jesus has literally committed himself to you. He laid down his life for you. God, because of Jesus, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
Jesus told his disciples the night before he was crucified that when he ascended, he would ask the Father and the Father would send them another comforter. John 14, 15, 16, Jesus explains to them what the ministry of the comforter would look like and, and what a privilege, what a gift from God that that comforter, the paraclete, the one who would come alongside of us and help us along in this journey, we have from him. You see, he has literally committed everything to us. The more challenging question for us to answer is not what is Jesus committed to us, but what have we committed to Jesus? The, the flow of the passage is interesting, and it leaves us asking, did the disciples initially withhold from Jesus? You say, why do you say that? Look back at the passage. Jesus asks in verse number five, how many loaves have ye? And they said seven. And then there's this interlude. He commands the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves. He gave thanks. He broke those and gave to the disciples to set before them. And so Jesus has taken the loaves. He breaks them up, and they, they are distributing those to the people. And then the Bible says in verse seven, and they had a few small fishes. Did the disciples initially withhold everything from Jesus? I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's an interesting thought. He said, how many loaves have you? Well, we have seven. Here you go, Lord. He begins to, to bless those, to break them, and they're passing them out to 4,000 people, and they're seeing the food multiply. They're seeing the blessing of Jesus and I, one of the disciples gets the idea, hey, hey guys, we have these few small fish too. Let's give those to Jesus and see what he can do with those. Initially, apparently, not everything was given over to Jesus. But after seeing Jesus work with what he had been given, now they say, all right, we've got this. Let's give that to him too. I wonder... What do I withhold from Jesus? Can I ask you today, is there anything that you have or that you are withholding from him? He's committed everything to you. Can I ask it this way? Have you given Jesus the loaves, but you're still holding the fish? Isn't it interesting how we compartmentalize our lives and how uh, we can say, well, I'm completely surrendered to the Lord. And what that means is maybe in this little area of my life, he has everything. But, but maybe in some other area, he does not. Well, Jesus has complete control of this in my life. But maybe not this or that. And what that's like is giving Jesus the loaves and saying, here you go, Lord, here are the loaves, and holding on to the fish. Had the disciples held on to everything, if they had kept the loaves and the, the fish for themselves, they would not have been able to participate in the work of Jesus. They wouldn't have limited Jesus. They wouldn't have hindered Jesus. You see, Jesus can do Whatever. Jesus could have, could have made bread appear from the, the pebbles of sand in that wilderness place. It wasn't about Jesus needing them. It was about them receiving the blessing of participating in the work of Jesus. And if they had withheld everything, they would have not received that blessing. If they had given over the loaves and held on to the fish, the blessing would not have been as great. Jesus committed everything to you. Have you committed everything to him? And you say, well, pastor, you don't really understand. My everything is so little. Okay, let's go there. Is seven loaves and a few small fish much or little among 4,000 people? If I brought a few loaves and a few fish in here and we were to have a meal in the in the fellowship hall afterward and and we got into line and and there were a few loaves and a few small fish how quickly would that be gone among us if gabe got to the line first it'd all be gone 
it'd be gone quickly, wouldn't it? And you might sit this morning and you'd say, you might think, well, my everything is not very much. Seven loaves committed to Jesus, a few fish committed to Jesus among such a great need, amongst a world filled with darkness and brokenness. What I have to offer the Lord, even if it's everything, is not very much. But can I tell you this morning, a few loaves and a few fish committed to Jesus in that passage changed everything. A small group of disciples who had committed everything to Jesus in the book of Acts turned the world upside down. A a small group of believers in the first century after Jesus ascended to heaven, it did not take very long for the gospel to get out to the entire known world at that time because the majority had committed everything to Jesus. Why is it that millions and millions and millions of professing Christians in our world today cannot have the same impact? Maybe it's because we've not committed everything. Pastor, my everything's not much. Well, can I tell you today that Jesus is the God of Ephesians 3 that we read earlier in the service? Who is the God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us? Who is that God? Is it some God distinct from the God of Mark chapter 8? Is that God some God, a God that no longer exists or is not available to us? Is that God a God whose power and influence over the world was was diminished once the written record was completed? Is that a God who no longer gives his spirit? Is that a God who no longer calls people out of darkness into his marvelous light? Is that a God who is no longer the friend of sinners? Is that a God who no longer gives his spirit in fullness to those who are his, his children who have committed themselves to him? Does that God no longer exist? Is that God dead or diminished? And the answer is no! He's the same God! He's not changed. And so the reality today is that that God who has compassion for everyone is the same God that we say we serve today. That same God who had a commitment, Jesus, to please his Father and to do his work, and that was lived out through serving others. whose commitment led him to a cross where he died to pay the penalty for every man, woman, boy, and girl's sin, who has committed everything to us, is the same God. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if if just one of us would say, I'm going to love everyone the way Jesus did. If just one of us would say, I'm going to commit everything to him the way Jesus did. Then God could do something great. God could take that one and do something miraculous now how much more might that be true if more of us said, I'm going to love everyone. I can't at this very moment remember who the preacher was or who the person was that responded, and it really doesn't matter. One of the great preachers whose, names you would, whose name you would know when he was just a young man said in a service where he heard another great well-known preacher Say, the world has yet to see what God can do with one wholly committed to him. 
That young man who was sitting in that service said, I'll be that one. And God did amazing and miraculous things. Jesus invites us to participate in his work. To have compassion on everyone. To have a commitment to God like he did. That says, I'll go to the cross with you. I'll lay down my life with you. Here's my everything. Take and use it as you want. The measure of a man's power is in the measure of his surrender. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus invites us this morning to participate in his compassion and commitment. And I believe we participate best through loving God and others as he does and through serving God by serving others. How today can you participate in his compassion and commitment? What is the response you need to have to the word and spirit of God today? The reality is God can and will do great things through us as we participate in the compassion and commitment of Jesus. For the believer, make a commitment to accept his invitation to participate in his compassion and commitment through loving God and others as well as serving God by serving others. And if you're a child of God today and he is speaking to your heart, would you make that commitment or recommit in that way to him. And then, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever your circumstances are, know today that Jesus loves you. He's given himself for you. Would you believe on him and be saved? Father, as we have a time of invitation i pray that you would do your work and help us to respond as you lead in jesus name amen